You're listening to The Desk Set, a bookish podcast for reading broadly. We're your hosts, Emily Calkins and Britta Barrett. On this episode, we're talking about books in two categories from this year's 10 to Try Reading Challenge. Read a book by an author whose gender is different from yours and read a book with friends. And you actually talked with some of your friends, didn't you? Yeah. So I thought it would be fun for this episode to choose a book that I knew friends of mine would want to read and talk to them about it. So a couple of my friends who are long distance friends at this point, um, we all love Tana French, who's a mystery writer, and she has a new book out called The Searcher. So we all read it and then we had a chat about it and you'll get to listen to that later. Oh, I love long distance book club. (laughs) And then who else did you talk to? So I also talked to Sarah Gailey. Uh, They're the author of a bunch of sci-fi and fantasy books. Uh, They're non-binary and their work features non-binary characters as well. So we got to talk a little bit about that and also about all all the fun stuff that they have in their books. Um, The main book that we talked about is their most recent book. It's called Upright Women Wanted. And it's about, it's a post-apocalyptic Western starring a band of subversive queer librarians. So super, super fun. Can't wait to listen. Hi, uh, I'm Sarah Gailey. I'm an American author of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. My most recent books that have come out include um, When We Were Magic, a young adult novel about teen best friends trying to deal with the consequences of an accidental murder, Upright Women Wanted, a pulp western about queer spy librarians on horseback fighting fascism in the near future American Southwest, in the paperback edition of Magic for Liars, my adult novel debut about a non-magical private investigator trying to solve the murder of a faculty member at a high school for magical teens where her estranged magical sister just so happens to work. Thank you. So your work often starts out with a really catchy premise, like you said, like queer librarians fighting fascism in a new future. Uh, your sort of first books are about feral hippos in the Louisiana bayous, murder at a private school with magic. But I feel like your work actually ends up being as much or maybe even more about the individual characters as these fantastical worlds they live in. Can you talk about how you balance those elements? I'm really happy that that's what you take away from the books because that's exactly how I want to be writing. You know, I always start from a place of character and relationship um, and the pitch kind of comes from there. But the fact that I am able to mine out the things that will draw people in so that they wind up getting invested in these characters is really, that's my, that's my whole goal when I finish writing a book to be able to say, hey, you complete stranger who has no reason to trust that I can write a character well, here's why you should be interested in this book. Um, sometimes I think about it kind of like when you need to give a dog medicine and you like wrap the pill in a piece of of ham or something (laughs) where I'm like, Hey, it's, it's a pulp Western with hippos. Isn't that great? And people are like, wow, this should be fun. And then I'm like, surprise. It's about the trauma of violence and the way that PTSD affects different people. (laughs) (laughs) So fun. But what's astonishing to me is like, it actually is still fun. Like it, it both has that really serious sort of, um, serious topics, serious character work, and yet it maintains this kind of gleeful tone um, a lot of the time. So 
I'm just really impressed by the way that you're able to balance those two things. Thank you. I don't want to take full credit for that. My editors uh, play a big role in keeping me from kind of going too navel-gazy and doomy. Um, I very specifically remember that the sequel to that first hippo book is called Taste of Marrow, for your listeners who don't know. And I remember the editor just kind of sitting me down and saying, hey, this book is so depressing. This is not what people are going to expect from reading the first book. And I'm like, yeah, it's all about the second half of that arc where you have the adventure and then you have to deal with all the fallout afterward. And he was like, no, you don't understand. It's too sad. (laughs) (laughs) I do sometimes have this tendency to kind of fall into a hole of just emotion. And it's really good to have my my agent who does kind of editorial passes and also my editors to say, okay, but don't forget that also like people need to feel good sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So kind of going back to that idea of like, sort of slipping in these character things or these bigger themes. Um, River of Teeth, which is the first hippo book, has a non-binary character who I believe is just introduced as they and it's kind of never remarked upon by the other characters. But in Upright Women Wanted, um, Sai makes a point of explaining their pronouns to Esther. Can you talk about how you approach introducing non-binary characters to readers who may or may not be used to reading a singular they? Yes. Um, and it's, you know, it's very different between those two books because when I wrote River of Teeth, I hadn't quite, um, how to put this? I, I hadn't connected my own non-binary identity with myself yet. I was sort of in this situation in my life where I was very quietly queer and like not engaging with it very much and, and trying to pretend like it didn't matter and wasn't important. And then I wrote this non-binary love interest and I was like, well, this is the most interesting character to me in the book. And also I want everybody to think they're hot and cool and smart. Um, which, you know, in hindsight, a little bit significant. (laughs) Um, And I I talk about this a lot, and this also strongly influenced the way I wrote Upright Women Wanted, that in the first draft of that book, the ending that that character received was not kind. Um, it, It was written to reflect what I thought was sort of the natural narrative outcome for for non-binary and queer and trans characters. And a an early reader really sat me down and said, You're, this is bad and wrong, and what are you doing? Don't do it. Um, and that opened a big door for me of like, oh, wait, it's not, it's not dangerous to be this kind of person. It's not bad. It's not going to hurt me and the people around me to be this kind of person, which led to like, everything else that happened in my life, it completely opened the door for me to say, oh, wait, I, I, it's okay for me to look at the person who I am and acknowledge and accept that. And that, that doesn't mean that my life is going to be sad and tragic, which is so much of what Upright Women Wanted is about. Um, in Upright Women Wanted, you know, it, it's really the story of a, a young queer person realizing that they can be queer and have a happy story in their life and that tragedy doesn't have to be the end for them. All this to say, I was in a very different place when I wrote each of those books. So when I wrote uh, Hero, the non-binary character in River of Teeth, I was playing it as safe as I could. I was saying, we're going to make this person as palatable as possible to a reader who's not familiar with non-binary people. We're going to make this person as kind of... um, not non-threatening because no one in that book is non-threatening because they, you know, they're all, they're all, uh, they all are perfectly happy to spill blood if they need to. But, you know, I'm, I'm going to make the way this person is presented as natural and normal as possible. Um, 
I, I kind of think of that as the way that popular media was portraying a lot of queer people in like the late, I want to say the late nineties, early two thousands. Um, where it was very like, look, queer people, they're just like you. Right. Um, and that was sort of how I was approaching Psy, both because I wasn't yet comfortable enough in my own queer identity to take more risks as a, as a narrator and author. And also because I was very much struggling with this idea of like, wait, queer people, they're just like me. What does that mean about me? (laughs) Um, And in Upright Women Wanted, the queerness is a lot more confrontational because that's where, that's the place I've gotten to in my own life. You know, it's, is the place of saying, um, there, there are people who will say, I don't care if you live that kind of life, just don't rub it in my face. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm going to rub it in your face. Like, <laughs> And uh, I've also come to a place in my life where I think that, you know, and this is this is not something everyone will agree with. This is my own belief um, that trying to blend in and be palatable doesn't actually serve us because you can never be blending in enough. You can never be palatable enough to ultimately please people who hate the person who you are. Um, so in Upright Women Wanted, I wrote this non-binary character, Sai, who is also the love interest because I'm apparently very predictable. And I'm still <laughs> like, I want people to think the non-binary person is hot and smart and cool. Um, doesn't Nothing to do with me. Don't worry about it. Uh, but, you know, this this person is the love interest. And um, when when they are among friends and in safe spaces, they use they, them pronouns. And when they're not among friends and in safe spaces, they use she, her pronouns and pass as female. Um, and the reason I did this as, uh, as this character's life is because she, sorry, is because they live in a society that does not accept queerness. And so it's not safe for them to, be the person who they are everywhere they go the way that it is for hero in river of teeth in in river of teeth i wrote a very you know a very easy world for these characters to live in in an effort to make this book friendly to people who would be seeing themselves in a pulp western narrative and you know wanting to be able to feel safe and comfortable in that world um which i think was still the right thing to do for that story but upright women wanted is very much about how the world we live in and the world that some people are trying to build for us is not safe for most people. Um, and Sai is a character for whom it's not safe to be themselves everywhere they go. I wrote this both to say something about the world of Upright Women Wanted and to communicate something to readers about the world that we live in. Because, you know, it's not safe for me to use they, them pronouns everywhere I go, right? I'm, mm-hmm. I'm about to have to make a like a two hour drive in a few weeks. And for that drive, I'm going to be putting on full makeup. I'm going to be dressing in very feminine clothing because if I get pulled over by a police officer, I don't want to be a visibly queer person. I want to be someone who they're going to leave alone as much as possible. Hmm. It's just a matter of safety. Hmm. Um, And this is also true for so many queer, genderqueer and trans people You know, like I have to decide when I go to a doctor's office, if I'm going to say, I'd like you to use they, them pronouns for me, or if I'm just going to put up with being misgendered in an effort not to be discriminated against by my doctor. So when I'm introducing, this is all very long winded way to answer your question, sorry, when I'm introducing a non-binary character to a reader, the way that I handle that character is really going to be dependent on the world they're inhabiting. Um, And it's also going to be dependent on the world I'm inhabiting and the person who I am, Uh, that's going to be reflected in kind of how how much work I'm willing to do on behalf of the reader versus how much work I want the reader to do on behalf of the character. 
I love that. Thank you. Um, I think that Sai is very hot and cool and fun. So great work there. <laughs> and also I love that Sai is both like um, sort of grouchy as like rightfully so, right? Because they're always trying to navigate all of that stuff that you just talked about, but also so generous with Esther, like so willing to kind of do that work that Esther doesn't know how to do. Um, I just really appreciated that character. They're wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. I I think it's, you know, in many ways that character, the way that that character approaches Esther is very much how I feel about my own relationship with the queer community, um, which I love very much. And I'm so, so thankful for where, you know, the queer community can be kind of grouchy. If you come into the queer community, the way that I did as somebody who doesn't know, nearly enough to avoid stepping on people's toes and and causing harm. And then you say something that hurts somebody, they're going to let you know about it. They're going to hold you accountable. And at the same time, there's immense generosity in the queer community where people are willing to help other people learn. And, you know, there's a sense of mentorship within the queer community when someone comes in and says, I don't know who I am, but I'm trying to figure it out. Um, Size relationship with Esther is very much like that, where it's like, listen, you better catch up. You better not screw this up. You better not put me in danger or hurt me. But I don't expect you to know everything about everything. So I'll teach you if you're willing to learn. Uh, So one of the things that I really like about your work is the way that you kind of play with genre, both sort of celebrating it and at the same time interrogating it. To me, it kind of feels like a queer approach to gender. Like you're saying, I see what the rules are. And I also understand that I don't have to follow them all of the time. And by choosing when I follow them and which ones I follow, it's kind of like a critique. And I wonder if you if you think about it that way, as like when you're playing with genre, you're you're both sort of celebrating it and saying like, hey, we maybe haven't looked at it from this angle, and there's some issues with this genre as it exists. Oh my gosh, you are so spot on. Um, I think it is absolutely a, a queer mindset to bring to genre. And it's it's so interesting to talk to people about this because there are some people who say that I like, you know, I skewer genre or all of my work critiques each genre I write in. And there are some people who are like, oh no, this is a celebration. I always wonder about where that perspective comes from. Because to me, you can't celebrate something without without critiquing it, right? You can't you can't love something without understanding it. And to understand something, you have to understand its flaws. We have to submit genres to the mortifying ordeal of being known in order to truly love them. And I I truly love the genres that I write in. And I'm also always like, why do we do things the way we do? Um, one, of the, one of the biggest kind of easiest examples of this that I really love talking about is the Western because I've written, you know, now a few uh, pulp Westerns and I really love pulp Western and like spaghetti Western cinema, especially. And at the same time, I'm always like, why on earth would we center white men in this? Like a Western is a story of survival in a world that doesn't want to let you live in it. It's a story of courage and independence and, you know, like white guys, like cis hetero white guys, cis hetero able bodied white guys generally have a much easier time navigating the world than other people. So why on earth would they be the people who we think could survive in the the wild west and the high desert? Um, so, you know, 
when I bring queer people and people of color to my pulp Western narratives, to me, that just feels like a natural extension of loving what the genre is actually about and what the genre is actually trying to say. Mm -hmm. Um, It's certainly not a, uh, it's certainly not coming from a place of contempt for the genre as some people uh, in predictable demographics tend to think. Um, Instead, it's just, I mean, I I really just love the things that I'm writing and I want to write them as honestly as I can. I feel like that love really shows like there's, I think I said gleeful earlier. And I think I, um, I see that in both uh, river of teeth and upright women wanted. And I keep coming back to those two. Cause those are the ones that I've read. Um, <laughs> just like this sense of like, of like, I don't want to say joy. Cause it's a little bit darker than that, but sort of like, Hey, I'm here too. And like, I can have fun with this and I can like, I can play with this and like, I can be in this sandbox that feels really celebratory. Um, so anyway, I just, I, I love the tone. I feel like the tone of your books is kind of unique in that it's both, it kind of has that like grouchy, like I'm here too. So what are you going to do about it? But also it's just like so fun. You know, I think it will not surprise you to learn that I climbed up the slide on the playground as a kid a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it feels very much like that. It's like, hmm, yeah, I can do that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so you talked a little bit about the, at the beginning that you have, in addition to these novellas, um, a adult debut, Magic for Liars, and a young adult novel, When We Were Magic. How is writing a novella like um, Upright Women Wanted or the um, River of Teeth series, how is that different from writing like a full-length novel? Oh, it's so different. It's so different. It's so different. I think that both forms are really challenging in different ways. And so whenever I talk about how they're different, I always want to kind of preface whatever I say with like, one is not easier or better than the other. A lot of people tend to fall into that kind of like hierarchical prescriptivist trap of saying that, you know, one form of writing is more difficult or more valuable than another. And I, I have no interest in that. That said, writing a novella goes for me a ton faster because, you know, first of all, it's less words, right? But there's also so much less space that it, it, the plot is a lot more dense. You have to jump from plot beat to plot beat a lot faster. So there's a sense of like being yanked through the story a lot quicker that Mm -hmm. kind of keeps my writing adrenaline up because I'm like, oh, the next thing's happening already. Where when I write a novel, sometimes I'll get a little bit bogged down in like the emotions of the scene or the descriptions. um, And I'll find myself like, like kind of rolling around in those a lot, which slows down my process quite a bit. There's also in a novel a lot more space for world building, for explicit conversation about emotions and context and um, uh, narrative exploration of ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, in a novella, you know, like in, in Upright Women Wanted, I sketch out my world building super loosely. And the same with River of Teeth. I sketch out my world building in like a couple of paragraphs, maybe a page. Um, whereas in a, a novel, you have a lot more space for sketching out your world building. And you're also asking your reader to stay in that world for a lot longer, which unfortunately gives the reader a lot more time to come up with questions about (laughs) world building. So I also find that when I'm writing in novella length um, or in novelette length, which I also, I also enjoy writing, 
I, I treat my world building a lot more kind of like a, a framing device. I treat my world building <clears throat> and not everyone does this. This is just me. I treat my world building a lot more like, Hey reader, you and I both understand that this is the case and we're going to accept that this is the case, right? We both understand that, um, there are hippos in the Louisiana bayous. Here's how they got there. And we're just going to roll with that for the next, you know, hundred some odd pages. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be cool with it. And the, I really need the reader to say, okay, yeah, I'm cool with that. I'm willing to accept that as the world that I'm in. Whereas at a novel length, readers have, a, I find a tendency to say, mm, I don't know if I am cool with that. You're asking me to stay in this world for a long time. I need it to make more sense. I need more explanation. I need more history and description, um, which might be part of why my novels tend to be a lot more micro in scale and a lot more about relationships and not as much about the world building that, uh, that they're taking place in. And your, is your next book a novel? Is that right? Yes. Uh, my next book, my next book is the echo wife coming out from tour in February of 2021. And that one is the story of a woman named Evelyn Caldwell. It's the story of the year she divorces her husband, uh, because she discovers that he's leading a secret second life with a clone of her that he created by stealing her technology so that he could have a less threatening version of her. <laughs> this is what I mean about pitches. Like, <laughs> I'm just so intrigued by that. Uh, and tell us a little bit about sort of like, what are the themes? Like, what's the pill that's in the ham that you're trying to give to us? <laughs> um, so this one is very much about identity, um, it, it, identity and who defines the person who you are when you're in a relationship with other people. Um, I wrote this book in the year that I was getting divorced. Um, the divorce in this book is nothing like the divorce that I went through. The man who I was married to is a, a very wonderful person. Um, not, I can't say as much for the husband in this book. <laughs> but when I when I divorced my husband, the circumstances of the divorce led me to need to move to a different state for a little while. And I was sort of all by myself. Um, and I, I really, I didn't know hardly anybody. It was a very lonely time. And I found myself having to answer the question of who I was when nobody needed anything from me. You know, I had, I had some professional obligations. I had some like long distance personal obligations, but I was living on my own for the first time in a long time. And I was far from my friends and family. And I was far from a a church community that I had been part of for a long time. And I just found myself adrift and thinking like, who the hell am I when no one's telling me what they need from me. Hmm. Um, and that's the time during which I wrote this book. I had the the pitch for it right when I moved. I sat down with my agent and, and pitched this book about clones and divorce and duality and identity. But as I was writing it, I realized that so much of it is just about the question of who shapes us um, and who we become when we are separate from the things that have shaped us for so long. Well, that sounds fascinating. I will put it on my to-read list uh, for February. Um, And then the last question that we always ask people is, what are you reading now? So I have just been reading a book called Why Fish Don't Exist, a story of love, of lost love and the hidden order of life by Lulu Miller. Um, It is an incredible book. It is kind of in parallel, a memoir of the life of the author and the 
biography of a, uh, a famous biologist and ichthyologist named David Starr Jordan, who was very invested in taxonomies. Um, and I, I would really encourage your listeners to go into this book knowing as little about it as possible, because the way that Miller builds the narrative is, you know, she tells you one story of a person's life and you feel like you have an idea of who this person is and you feel like you have the flavor of who they are. And then she adds in a layer of information that completely changes how you see that person and their life. And then she adds another layer of information that completely changes how you see that person and their life. And she does this for her own life as well as uh, Jordan's life. It's, it's really incredible. Um, I would, I would strongly encourage readers to read all the way to the end, even if they already know things about David Starr Jordan, um, because there are some really shocking revelations, as well as a lot of acknowledgement of, you know, the full person who he was, which was uh, not a person who I would necessarily be a fan of today. (laughs) (laughs) There are some, uh, some content warnings for this book for mentions of abuse and assault, um, but as as a person with a lot of trauma and PTSD, I thought it was handled very well and very uh, tenderly. And frankly, the end of the book just put me into a place of of such healing, crying that I I I feel like it sewed something up in my soul that has been needing this book for a long time. I highly recommend it. Yeah, I, that's one of the best book recommendations I've heard in a long time. So. Oh my <laughs> And tell, tell us again, it's called uh, it's Why called, Fish Don't Exist? Yes, it's called Why Fish Don't Exist, a story of loss, love, and the hidden order of life by Lulu Miller. And it is brilliant. Thank you. We will put a link to that in the show notes too, so that readers can find it at the library. Um, and that's all I have for you today. Thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. This has been such a pleasure. So I'm really excited to have my friends Julie and Katie here with me tonight to talk about um, Tana French's new book, The Searcher. Uh, Julie is joining us from Austin. Hey. And Katie is joining us from Portland. Hello. And they are both huge Tana French fans. So when I saw that she had a new book coming out and I knew that we had this category, uh, read a book with a friend for our reading challenge this year, I was like, yes, I want to read this book with Julie and Katie. Um, So you both have read it. And I just want to know to start, how did it sit with you? Let's start with you, Katie. Um, Well, I will say that this... I liked it. I like all of her books. So I liked it. And I there are parts of it that I loved. But I was not happy about the ending. And I know we're going to talk about it later. So I will save all of that. But there were definitely like, um, I was like all in and I, you know, as everybody has, I think been struggling to like stick with books or even get into books um, during this weird uh, time. And so this one though was like in immediately the setup was incredible. Like, um, the, like sort of beginning scenes, um, where there's, she's just like creating all this tension because the main character thinks he's being watched and you're like, Oh God, what's going to, you know, this. So, um, so scene setting was like really great. 
Um, and I was like all in and just plowed right through it, but, um, was left a little bit dissatisfied. I will say that. Okay. I am anxious to hear more about that, but before we talk more about your dissatisfaction, (laughs) what was your sort of overall take, Julie? Um, I am so interested to hear this too, because I was, I, I was like, I was a hundred percent satisfied. <laughs> I was fully, fully satisfied. I loved it. Um, I, I love that it was different from her other books, um, but still great. And so much of what I love about her writing, um, and storytelling was still there. And so, um, I just really appreciated like how economical her writing is, um, um, just again, like those opening scenes that you talked about, just draw you in. And, you know, that's, that's, uh, that doesn't, that hasn't changed um, over her writing. And so I really, really like that. Um, and I, I was fully on board with the, um, the, just the flow of the, uh, the plot and where it took us. So I, I actually really enjoyed it. I also, I mean, obviously, like, we all love her, and that's kind of why we're here. I really, really liked it. And I, it's sort of interesting to me where it comes in the scope of her work, because I think it's so different from The Witch Elm, which is her last book, not only sort of in terms of the, the kind of story that she's telling, but also like the the way that th- that story was so sprawling and this one is so tight and it's much shorter. You just like get into it. Like you both said right away, like the very opening scene, he's watching Cal, the main character is watching these rooks um, attack a rabbit. And somehow just like this very normal nature scene, she creates this tension. That's amazing. So I think she does all of the stuff that she does really well, well here. She's great with character. She's great with mood and with place. Um, I, I don't think it's my favorite. No, it's definitely not my favorite. Um, but it's definitely sort of like a middle of the pack for me. And I think it's kind of interesting because it feels, uh, sort of different in that, the economy of it, um, well, compared to her more recent works, especially with the Witch Elm, which was such an interior book, like it was all inside that character's head and you, and his perspective. And this is not right, like which is new for her too. Um, and so I think that that was another thing too, where that one was was so navel gazy. Um, and I loved the Witch Elm. I think that's controversial. I think a lot of people did not. Um, and so this one, I think I was missing maybe a little bit of that um, because I know it's. I always screw. This up third person right it was written in third person this time yeah Yeah. and so you're not getting really his thought process and he's like doing a lot of stuff and you're like well is that the best thing to do man um (laughs) so um but he's doing it so you know um so anyway it was interesting to read a book of hers that lacked that piece which i really think of as a hallmark of hers that's a really interesting point. Um, I I think that I just like devoured it so quickly. It didn't. I didn't consciously realize that it was in totally different voice than the rest of her books. Um, and I think I actually honestly liked it better for that. Um, I also like how you know her her yeah. Like I love how her books have. Um, I love how her books have changed over time. Um, I did not 
love the witch elm as much um but i this one really really got me so i think something you said there julie reminded me of um, another question that has kind of been in my head which is that this is kind of being pitched as a Western, like a lot of the marketing around it, or like when she's being interviewed about it, she, there's kind of this idea that Cal's this stranger who rides into town and he gets caught up on local in like the local business. Do you have any thoughts about that comparison? It seems like that the difference between like a Western and like a, like a psychological thriller, which is sort of more what the witch elm was with like a unreliable narrator might be, might Mm -hmm. be part of like the differences that you guys are seeing in it. I don't know. What do you think? Absolutely. Like it had, it had not occurred to me while I was reading it. And then when you had brought that up, I was like, Oh my God, of course. And it also makes sense because I'm a really big fan of, you know, at least the movie Western. Um, and so there are so many parallels that that comparison really does ring true to me. And so much of like thematically, I think also really makes sense. Um, you know, the sense of isolation and the, the relation between this character and and this, the place that's so strong throughout the Western genre, um, I think is it, it just that really, that really was like, yes, it, that makes sense. <laughs> and I think that's reinforced by like that you talk about the isolation, but there's also like, you know, sort of the like almost lawlessness of it. Like the, there's a police presence in this tiny town, but it's like kind of a joke. Right. And so when things start going and Cal's like motivated to get involved, he knows it's because like, there's no, no one else. Right. And so, um, I think also just like being out there on on your own and not like being sort of outside of the rules of regular society. I think another thing that I thought was really great was the scene in the pub um, and so that's another similarity also where you have the pub functioning in this book similar to the saloon in a western um, and where people are gathering and I think a lot of deadwood and yeah I thought it was that th- I thought those similarities are also very very excellent uh, that is brilliant I hadn't thought about the pub and the Western saloon at all. But when we were reading, Julie and I, we were texting about the book and we were talking about, there's like this one particular scene in the pub that is just, I think really shows off all the things that she does so well. Julie, can you talk a little bit about that scene and what you loved about it? Um, The dialogue just feels so real to me and it feels like I am right there. And I feel like it's really tough to get those kinds of crowd scenes where you have, you know, such interesting and complex character dynamics that are all coming out through either just observation or what they're saying. Um, and it, it's just, it's so succinct and so precise, um, and entertaining and just, you are, I don't know, you are there and I don't get that very often. Um, and I just thought it was outstanding. Yeah, that was my favorite scene in the whole book. And that was like the only time that I was genuinely stressed out while reading this like a lot. Um, But this was the only time in the book where I was just like, what is gonna happen? Like, I felt so tense. And I was like, flipping the pages. But you know, it was the way that it was just so rapid fire. And you're like, feeling the I felt very much like Cal must have been feeling where I was like a little at sea and like oh no but feeling like he was definitely feeling like he was like at risk and trying to stay in it and play along and so it was like 
Um, it was, I mean, it takes a lot to like build up that feeling in a reader. Right. And it was just, it felt like this churn going around, um, of like this dialogue and trying to keep up and not get like sucked down and whatever was going to happen. Cause there was definitely like threats of violence and like, what is, how is this going to turn out? And so it was, um, it was just, yeah, super well done. Yeah, I one of the things I normally love in her books is the interrogation scenes where the cops like have the suspects at the station and they're trying to get them to confess essentially. She's so good at writing dialogue where people are not saying things or are saying things other than what the words they're saying are and to me I totally agree that scene it like levels up on that like it there's all of this undercurrent to what's being said and you can kind of get the sense that it's there, but you aren't sure what it is. And yeah, Cal is like trying to keep up with all of these. It's like all of the men from this tiny little village and they're trying to get him drunk and you can't like, is it out of camaraderie or is it because they want to like do him harm or like a little bit of both? And it's just, it feels like it's constantly shifting. That's one thing I really loved in this book is I felt like there are all these moments where you feel you can feel Cal feeling everything kind of shift underneath him. Like the countryside is beautiful and then suddenly it's uh, dangerous or it's desolate or it's isolated. You know, it's like quiet and peaceful or he's all alone and they turn on a dime. And I feel like that scene in particular, like it just keeps turning on you and trying to get your bearings is so similar to what's happening to the character that it's just, uh, yeah, very stressful. Oh, the other thing I wanted to talk about is there's sort of a, I don't even want to call it like a Black Lives Matter subplot because it's like lesser than a subplot, right? But it's kind of interesting. And this is one of the points where I kind of struggled in the book. So Cal is a former Chicago police officer. He's retired early. And in addition to that alone, sort of having a lot of, uh, like it brings up a lot for American readers, at least. I don't know how it would go and how it would read in Ireland, but he has this moment with his partner where they are chasing this young man who has leapt out a window for some reason, but he's not been accused of a violent crime. And his partner shoots at him and misses basically because like the kid maybe has something in his hand and everybody's fine, but he sees it as this real close call. And it's sort of like the final straw for him to leave the force. But I wasn't, to me, that element felt a little bit forced, which is rare for her. And even when she's trying to do things that are kind of timely, like I think the witch elm ended up having sort of a lot of like me too elements to it, but I don't know. What did you guys think about that part? I agree. It felt, um, so, you know, when I started reading the book, um, I, my first feeling was one of like, uh, I don't feel like I should be reading a book about a cop or even an ex cop right now. Um, it just didn't make me feel super great. Um, but it's Tana French. So of course I'm going to keep reading, (laughs) but I, um, I did feel like, there was a kind of aspect that felt like, um, here's why. And, um, 
it was, it was kind of like, please keep reading, <laughs> please keep reading my books, uh, that kind of thing. And not, not in, in a way that was really off putting. It just, it definitely felt a little more forced and it did feel like kind of more of a direct address to, um, or an anticipation of, uh, criticism that might come as a result of, you know, just the, the general subject matter, um, I don't know. Katie, what did you think? Um, that felt like such a weird blip because, you know, we get sort of dribs and drabs of information about Cal's life before he ends up in the village. And a lot of it has to do with his divorce and everything else. And I honestly kind of forgot about that little plot point until he brought it up again, you know, when we were talking about this and because it seemed like it wasn't the catalyst. And so that's why it even like plot wise feels weird and shoehorned in. Cause you like ostensibly is the reason he left, but also his life was falling apart anyway. And like, I don't know, it just, yeah, I didn't love it. And I also, I, it was news to me that Tana French is not in fact Irish and just lives, has lived in Ireland for a long time because like, I was like, it's weird that she's writing about like an American and what does it mean that she's like made this, you know, ex-cop an American ex-cop coming to Ireland? Is that just like to make him a super outsider and what's she trying to accomplish with that? And it would be really interesting to hear like the why behind that um, from her perspective, because it was it was like felt a little strange to me. And I guess it's maybe just like he's just a super outsider, but also Chicago as a city felt like a particular choice to me in a way of like, we all know what happens in Chicago and how the media talks about Chicago. And so I don't know, it just, yeah, it didn't sit right within the, the rest of the story. And I, yeah, I would be, I wonder about that sort of, I don't know. Yeah. It just doesn't, I didn't, it didn't stick with me. And then thinking about it, it makes even less sense, like as I'm trying to analyze it. So yeah. Yeah, it sort of seemed unnecessary. Like, yes. it seemed like the fact of his divorce should have been enough. Yes. You know, to like send him to Ireland. Like, I don't, it didn't feel like it needed it. And I almost wonder if like either she or someone at the publisher at some point was like, you know, like we need to address, like if you're going to make him an American ex-cop, like we need to maybe like address this right yeah. now. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, that... It didn't, it was just sort of like, why are you doing this? Yes. You know? Yes. <laughs> okay. So now we're going to talk about the ending. So for listeners who don't want to hear us talk about the ending, now's the time to pause, fast forward, uh, or skip the rest of the show. But I want to know, first of all, did you see it coming? I never see it coming. I never do either, but I saw this one coming, which is why I didn't like it as much. Oh, interesting. <laughs> uh, yeah, so here's what did it. The pub scene did it. I was like, more than anything, this reminds me of the movie, which is maybe not everybody's favorite movie, but one of my very favorite movies, Hot Fuzz. Have you guys seen that movie? No. Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> yes. So it's a movie uh, from like 2007 or something starring Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. It's an Edgar Wright movie, came after Shaun of the Dead. And 
Simon Pegg's this cop that comes to this small village and he's trying to be a big city cop in this small village and it's all a little weird and I'm going to spoil hot fuzz for everybody now too. Um, But what it ends up being is like they have the like town elders have this motto that's like for the greater good and they like are murdering people who don't fall in line with the like rules of their little village that they've determined. And I was like, this really reminds me of hot fuzz. I hope it's not one of these for the greater good things. And then as soon as I thought that, I was like, well, Mart's very suspicious. Um, and so then from then on, I was just looking for that. Um, and so it, and then so then like all the Dublin drug dealer stuff, I was like, this is all a red herring. We don't even know these characters like that's yeah. not going to be a thing. And so and then the other thing is she was talking about bogs a lot, you know, and I just read that book, Ghost Wall. Have you either of you read that book? I love that book so much. Yeah. Yeah. So for more information about go- uh, bogs, everybody read Ghost Wall. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I was like, oh, I ho-. and then I thought it was going to be a thing where it was like, oh, Brennan just like sunk in a bog on the mountain and nobody will ever find his body. And that was how it was going to be like an unresolved thing. Yeah. Um, so so, yeah, so it was like a marrying of those two things. And so when it turned out to be like sort of almost exactly what I expected, I was just like, oh, well, huh. Like I wanted it to be something other than that. And so that sort of colored my whole reading of it from there on yeah. out. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> so how about you, you Julie? Know. Did you did you see it coming? So I I don't know that I saw it coming. I like I don't know. Okay. I did kind of see it coming. Um, and I didn't mind that because to me, it wasn't so much about the whodunit aspect because it was more about, for me, Cal and Trey and their relationship and Cal and the town and his relationship to the town and the, or the village or whatever. Um, and so for me, I don't really mind, um, when a whodunit isn't like super whodunity. And I think, I think this is something that I also really like about her books where, um, you know, I mean, in the woods, it's like, you don't get closure. And if people aren't okay with that, they're not going to like that book. And so for me, it wasn't, it's like another, another instance of what you expect from the genre, um, of her kind of, um, playing with that a little bit. That's what it felt like to me. Um, but I, I really, I really liked the ending, and I didn't mind that. I, I kind of knew. All right, there's something going on here with Mart, and there's definitely something going on here with uh, Brendan dealing drugs, and it's going to be something like that. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I did not see it coming. I'm a great mystery reader because I'm really. Uh, I don't want to say dumb, but like I just. Like, <laughs> I'm extremely credulous. Yes. Uh, And so I'm always surprised by the ending of a mystery. But one of the things that I love about her is that you don't ever really get like a full stop resolution, you know, like you in the woods is the clearest example where you like really don't get a resolution, but even in, in most of the other ones, you don't get a full resolution or like a full sort of justice served. And I think you're right, Julie, like 
the plot is is compelling, but really what's most interesting about her books is the way that she uses that plot to explore other themes, you know, and particularly I think in this book, what was most interesting for me is this relationship between Cal and Trey and the way that that's kind of mirrored. And this is like the thing that I love so much about her books, the way that there's like something else in the protagonist's life that's kind of mirrored by the circumstances of the crime. So in this particular book, like his relationship with his daughter, right, is is sort of similar to his relationship with Trey. And the moment when Trey shows up on his doorstep and she's been beat up, really... Uh, sort of echoes the his daughter being mugged, right? And to me, those are that's what makes these books feel so rich is like the way that there's these echoes and callbacks in in the plot that you that give help you understand why the characters do what they do. It's like, oh yeah, he sees in Trey what he saw in his daughter, and so that makes him act in certain ways. Did you did see not- the reveal on Trey's gender coming? Not at, not at all. Me neither. Not at all. Yeah. So and I let's talk about that. Yeah. So do you think it was like in order? Like I don't know. Like pro- do you think like if he knew that she was a girl to begin with, he would not have like taken the time to like you know show her carpentry? Like why do you think? I don't know. It's very yeah. interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think exactly like, you know, he's, well, I would think coming from a, 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 you know, being an ex-cop and stranger danger and street smarts um, that he would (laughs) not uh, be encouraging a young girl to be hanging around his house. And I mean, he makes that, um, that's that, you know, he, he gives voice to that feeling a lot, but um, I think, part of the like beauty of that relationship is seeing how that that doesn't actually matter um and seeing how he's actually wrong about that um and i really i really enjoyed that change toward the end and i guess it was probably not so it would be like an analog for his daughter the whole time and then it's yeah. like only when it like mattered <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i think that's why she ends up being like, otherwise it would have been fine. Right. For her to just, for the character to have been a boy. Like I, I I think it's like necessary for him to have that kind of moment with her where he feels, where he draws that comparison so that he keeps looking right. That he keeps trying to figure out what's going on, even though it's been made very clear to him that like, that is not a smart thing to do. Right. Yeah. I feel like, uh, I wrote this down because I was like making some notes last night thinking about what I wanted to say about this. And it seems like um, both this and the witch elm are like Tana friends asking like, are men okay? Like, cause you know, she, <laughs> in this one, you know, Mart's very concerned about like the young men in the community and is not concerned about women. They're going to be fine and take care of themselves and get out when they need to get out or whatever. But like in this one, you know, the concern is for the young men and what's going to happen to them. And in the witch elm, it was like a lot. I mean, it felt like a real exploration. I mean, a privilege, too. It was like very much a privilege thing, but also like a masculinity thing, too. Um, So, yeah, it just felt like, uh, you know, she's really grappling, I think, with that idea of like how to be a man uh, today. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's like really 
it's just really interesting because I think that's sort of a newer theme. Like, you know, Rob, who's the hero of In the Woods, seems like that he that character would have been ripe to think about that, but that's not really, as far as I remember, it's been a long time since I read that. That's not really part of, like, what's going on with him. Like, no, there's a lot uh-uh. of, like, uh, hidden trauma and, like, inability to face his childhood and, like, a lot of other stuff. But you're right. There's definitely... The Witch Elm is sort of all about toxic masculinity uh, in several ways and and sort of like how masculinity feeds into privilege and all of that. Um, but yeah, I agree. This book too has like a sort of like what's happening with young men. He's going to stay, right? Like he's going to stay in the town. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got that sense as well. So like what's he going to – because he agrees yeah, so to get the dog at the end. That? He agrees to get the dog. Right, yeah. What do you like? What do you make of that? It's really interesting. You're like, how is he gonna? I mean, really, it's like, how is he gonna function being the way that he is, knowing how they sort of handle situations? Like, is he gonna be on the lookout for that stuff? Or did he learn a lesson here? And he's gonna like, go along to get along? Like, it seems like that's the decision he makes. But you know, at by the end, he's not really gonna he's really gonna try and hang up being a cop and just like, whatever it means to be a part of this community, he's going to do that. Like, is that the sense that you got? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, to me, I was thinking a lot about like his conversation with Trey on um, etiquette, manners and morals and thinking through like, you know, so much of his, um, his uh, internal struggle with being a cop was, am I doing the right thing? And, knowing that and and I think this is where also the you know the discussion on um uh you know the the police state at this point in time comes in on um you know the good cop bad system kind of thing and uh is he doing the right thing and I think in the end my my thought was yes and for him that was the community and even though um you know someone had been killed understanding that there's uh, uh, yeah understanding why I guess I don't know does that make it right am I a monster (laughs) (laughs) you guys did I just justify murder (laughs) that's one of the things that's so great about her books right is like I feel like every time you're like okay I not necessarily like I agree, but like I see how you got here, you know, like I understand. And that's sort of to me like what makes them so sort of scary and chilling is like you're like, oh, my God, like that isn't that doesn't feel that far away. Uh, again, this perhaps should have been obvious to me because it's always a character that, you know, right? Like it's not like yeah. the drug dealers from Dublin who haven't ever shown up before. I was like, I don't know. It's like a, it's like a Western. Maybe it's different. Um, <laughs> But so much of it is about, like, getting to know the murderer as well in some ways. Like, uh, so I think that one of her goals, right, is to kind of, like, shine a light, for lack of a better term, on, like, how people get into these positions. Like, how we come to the place of, like, doing violence and the idea that it's not as, as foreign as we think it might be. But in fact, like it's like everybody's kind of like on the edge. Uh. Yeah. I'm just thinking about this in um, 
relation to another mystery series that I love and think that I neither I don't think you've read it, Julie, but um the Louise Penny Chief Inspector Gamache novels. Have you've read one, right? Emily? I read just the first one. Yeah. yeah. Because there's like oh, fifteen or sixteen now. So many. Um and they're great, but it's definitely less interested, I think, in a lot in some ways, like in that I, I mean, I don't know. You just don't spend time really with the murderers in the same way. Um, and it's, but it is also about like morality and the kind of person you want to be in a world and like having a code. So I do think that, you know, Gamash would probably get along with Cal and probably even Mart too, um, in some ways, um, just because they um, are so ingrained with like that moral code too. It, it was reminding me of that a little bit in terms of like, what you see, uh, what the authors decide to show you about yeah. the people who perpetrate the crimes that the you know your your intrepid detective is solving. So I lied. I've I've read two of the Louise Penny <laughs> okay. ones, and I think the the difference is in the Penny books, it's only Gamash who gets a moral code. Yes, and in Tana French's books, like both parties have a moral code. You know. Not always. Um, like, especially the earlier ones, I think. Like, in the woods, like, she's clearly just a psychopath. Yeah. And, um, but even, like, by the time you get to the secret place, right? Like, there's, there's a, there's, like, a logic to it. And there's, like, a, there's, like, a reason behind it that seems reasonable. I feel like with the Louise Penny one I read the one where the person gets the first one where she like the arrow. arrow. It's like something about like painting and like money or, you know, like it's it's like a little bit more rote. It's less. Yeah. 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 And I think her characters are great, but I think she's just not as, she's not as interested in sort of like this question of like, how does a normal person get to this? Yeah. You know, which I think is sort of like at the heart of what Tana French is doing. Because the other thing is that Gamache is, like, I think Gamache's moral code is, like, more in line with sort of, like, general moral code, you know? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It's very good. It's less, like, it's good yeah, with fuzzy. a capital G. Yeah. And almost all of French's detectives are much more, like, shades of gray. Yeah. And, I mean, that's why her books are so devastating, too, is because you get to see both perspectives and you're like, well, there's not, like, a really a bad guy, so you know, so to right. speak. Um, and these people are just, you know, doing things for their reasons. And if they, you know, make sense to them, then, who, you know, it's, who's to say that you wouldn't also come to the same conclusion? <laughs> Thank you both for being here. It was a delight. Thank I was having fun. Before we go, we actually wanted to give some podcast suggestions. We know you're podcast listeners, and these are a few more that you might enjoy. 
So a couple that I really love um, that are right in line with what we talk about on the show are um, All the Books, which is a Book Riot podcast where Liberty Hardy, who's an amazingly prolific reader, and then a rotating cast of co-hosts talk about new book releases every week. So if you're curious about new books, it's a super great way to hear about both some of the bigger stuff, but also some under the radar things that are coming out. And my other personal favorite is Pop Culture Happy Hour. It's an NPR podcast, and it's almost like a joke at this point how many librarians are in their audience. Like, they're always like, oh, the librarians love this one. (laughs) Um, But it's hosted by Linda Holmes, who writes for NPR. And then she also has a bunch of – they have a standard set of four – co-hosts and then they have a bunch of rotating guest writers they talk about tv shows they talk about movies they talk about other podcasts they talk about books it's just a really fun way to learn about pop culture and you know add to your two watch list so it's as overwhelming as your to read list i love that one too and linda wrote a book that was one of the best books of last year right Yes, she wrote a book called Evie Drake Starts Over that I really loved. And if you're in the mood for a comfort read, it's just such a warm-hearted, lovely book. So some of my favorite kinds of podcasts are things like Reply All and 99% Invisible, which have this kind of nonfiction reportage approach. And there's actually a really cool library podcast called Borrowed that I think is in the same tradition. Um, They're from the Brooklyn Public Library, and they actually like get out into the neighborhood to tell local stories. And it's just really great storytelling. And if you're a fan of uh, sound rich audio podcasts and interesting library facts, you should totally check them out. And then I'm going to do something really shocking. I'm going to suggest some fiction podcasts. <laughs> that is, that's incredibly shocking to me. I didn't know you liked fiction in any form. I, guess I like too. it in so many forms. Just, <laughs> just not books. Just not physical books. <laughs> I love audiobooks, but even then, I don't really get into like a full cast production. But weirdly, I love like a mid-century radio drama. And I've gotten really into like a very specific kind of fiction podcast. Um, there's a series of them that are all by the same group. Um, have you heard of The Black Tapes or Tannis? No, I haven't. So these are two podcasts that are set in the Pacific Northwest, and they're by like a fictional NPR-style radio station uh, in Minnow Beats Whale, a place that does not exist, um, (laughs) where lots of spooky stuff happens (laughs) that they have to investigate. And each of their podcasts sort of takes on something different. So Rabbits is about um, an augmented reality game that consumes the life of the players in a way that becomes really dangerous. And uh, the journalist who's sharing the story, her friend went missing playing it. She tries to figure out what happened to her. There's this other one called The Last Movie, which is named such because supposedly it's the last movie you'll ever see before you die. It makes people go crazy. (laughs) And they're trying to research like... Can they see the movie? Who made it? All this lore behind it. And like all of them have a kind of science fiction horror investigation angle that's just like right up my alley. Thanks for listening. You can find all the books mentioned in today's episodes in our show notes. The Desk Set is hosted by librarians Britta Barrett and Emily Calkins, produced by Britta Barrett and brought to you by the King County Library System. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts.